Well, we can turn back to the chapter we read there, Luke chapter 18, and we can think about verses 15 to 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I don't know what you would suggest if someone asked you uh, to um, propose a title for Luke chapter 18. I'll tell you what I would suggest. One surprise after another. It starts off with Jesus telling a parable about a widow who pesters an unjust judge and then says that her pestering is just like prayer. She just kept at it until she got what she wanted. And the Savior says, that's how you're to pray. He does point out that God is not like the unjust judge, but he does say that persistence is an important part of prayer. And that's quite challenging, isn't it? Just keep at it. And then he goes on to talk about the Pharisees and the tax, a Pharisee and a tax collector and reverses the normal situation. In everyday life, the Pharisee was a good guy and the tax collector was a bad one. But here in this parable, Jesus turns it round and says that the Pharisee is a bad guy and the tax collector, he's a good one. And then he goes on to speak about children and doesn't say that children should become like adults, which you might expect him to say, Instead, he says that adults should become like children. And then Luke goes on to give an example of somebody who wasn't prepared to become like a child. And that's the rich young ruler. I mean, if a child was asked to give up what it had and follow Jesus, the child would have done it. This man was asked to give up what he had to follow Jesus, and he refused to do it. But the disciples were very surprised. This man looked like the ideal convert. It almost looks as if Jesus thought this man would have to change radically before he could be a convert. And then Jesus talks about his death. And Luke says about the disciples as they listened to Jesus that they hadn't a clue what he was talking about. 
And then Luke follows that by a blind man, Bartimaeus, who does know what's going on, despite he's been blind. Those who can see physically can't see. But the man who physically cannot see, he can see where Jesus, who Jesus is. And that he's able to help him in his situation. Now, this particular incident with the parents and the children, don't know where it took place. That's a an unknown location. You could even describe it as an unknown location where unknown parents took their unknown children to Jesus. Or we could put it another way, in an ordinary village, ordinary parents took their ordinary children to Jesus. And Is that not what happens? All over the world. I wonder how often that is happening today all over the world. Not not only do we not not know where it took place, but we don't know what happened to the children. Did they spend their lives living in their unknown village? Or did they move somewhere else? Well, we don't know. What is the question we should ask of these children? Surely it's this one. What eternal blessing did they get from this occasion? Because while we don't know where they went in their earthly life. We know where they are now. They're in eternity. As is everyone else who's alive on earth back then. So these um, children, privileged as they were, they raise questions. John Calvin says of this incident, this narrative is highly useful. If the great man says this narrative is useful, we should listen to him. But when he says it's highly useful, then we should pay more attention And why is it highly useful? Because he goes on to say, it shows that Christ receives not only those who move by holy desire and faith, freely approach him, that's the parents, but those who are not yet of age to know how much they need his grace, they can come to him. So I want us to think tonight about Jesus and children. (laughs) 
There are several instances in the Bible, in the New Testament, where Jesus interacts with a child or with children. And I'm sure we know what they all are. Or at least I hope we do. Children were fed by him when he fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. Indeed, as far as the 5,000 were concerned, it was a child's lunch from which they were fed. On Palm Sunday, children sang Psalm 118 to Jesus. When they sang Hosanna, in the temple, and a bit like the Pharisees here, the temple authorities wanted them stopped. But Jesus refused to stop them. Indeed, he said if they stopped, the stones would start singing. That would certainly be very unusual. Luke tells us that Jesus liked to watch children play in the market. He even mentions that in a parable. We know that Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus and how tenderly he spoke to her. Little girl, I say to you, arise. coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration where he um, was seen in all his splendor. What does he do at the bottom of the mountain? He heals a child that his disciples couldn't help. In this previous um, chapter, he had um, healed the or in another chapter, he had healed the daughter of the Canaanite woman from Sidon. On one occasion, he took a child into his midst and said to the disciples, you've got to be like him. They were trying to put themselves up. And he said, be like this child and be humble. And the last one I'm aware of is when he healed the child of an official from Cana. And we're told about after that that the whole household believed in him. And I assume the whole household includes the healed child. So Jesus had quite a lot of interaction with children. What kind of childhood did Jesus have? Well, certainly he had a miraculous conception. And when he was born, the heavenly host filled the sky. But how about after that? Well, he had to be rescued from Herod's evil intention. Not only was he rescued, 
but his rescue meant he became a refugee. I mean, he could have been rescued and gone somewhere else, apart from being a refugee. But in God's wisdom, that was where Jesus was to be. I wonder what Jesus in heaven thinks of refugees. He was one himself. But then he managed, the family were guided to go to Nazareth, and there he was submissive to Mary and Joseph, even though they didn't fully understand him. What's the childhood of Jesus got to do for us? Well, I suppose each of us can ask this simple question. What kind of child were we? Why did Jesus have to live as a child? Why did he have to live perfectly as a child? Sinlessly as a child? But you and I didn't. His righteousness that's reckoned to our account when we believe in him didn't begin when he was 12 or 15 or 30. It began when he was a child. Did it all on our behalf. So I think it's good to think of Jesus as a child and to think of how he reacts to children still because he's the same yesterday, today and forever. Jesus is the one person who has ever existed who has never had to withdraw a statement. And the passing of 20 centuries doesn't make his requirement that we become like little children obsolete. It's still as true today as it was back then. That's what he says here. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Nothing could be more straightforward. There's a longing of the parents here. It's very commendable, isn't it? Luke says something quite unusual about that. I don't know if you noticed it. He says, they were bringing even infants wonder why the word even is there. Apparently it was a custom for parents to bring children to rabbis so that rabbis would bless them. But perhaps they didn't bring infants. But here's Jesus. And the parents felt 
that they could bring their infants to him. I wonder what lesson we can take from that. Well, I would suggest that the obvious lesson is bring them as soon as possible. What did the parents want to do? What did they want Jesus to do? We might think um, what Luke says here is a bit obscure. It says here in verse 15 that they wanted Jesus to touch them. What would be the point of touching them? Well, if we turn to um, what Matthew says about this incident, we find that the touch was a laying on of hands. Now he would lay hands on them and bless them. So the children, sorry, the parents, they wanted their children to have the touch of divine blessing on their lives. I may be wrong when I say this, but I think they're the only parents in the Gospels that did this. I wonder how many other infants were in the proximity of Jesus. How many were there with their parents? But their parents didn't do the very simple response that these parents here did. Just ask Jesus to bless their children. I mean, they must have believed that Jesus had something to give them. And they must have believed that Jesus could do it immediately. So therefore, they asked him. And while this has got nothing to do with baptism, it's very similar, isn't it? What are we asking Jesus to do with children? It's actually even stronger than that. What are we expecting Jesus to do with children? We're expecting him to bless them. Not because they deserve it, but because that's who he is. He wants to do it. But Jesus didn't go up to the children, up to the parents and say, this is a piece of advice for you. Instead, he waited for them to do it. And when they did it, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. And we'll come back to that later on. Then we have the logic of the disciples, the response of the disciples, and the response of Jesus to this. And I think it's 
useful when we read these biblical incidents to imagine what we would do if we were there. It's, it's easy to be observers and say after the event, oh, we would never have done that. But I think it's useful just to put ourselves into the, the shoes of people that were there and what would we have done. The disciples. They didn't like it at all, what these parents were doing. We know they didn't like it because the description that Luke gives of their response is very strong. They rebuked the parents. He didn't just say to them, I, I, I don't think you should be doing that. Instead, they spoke very forcibly and saying, That's what you're doing is wrong. How little they knew the heart of their master. Wonder why they would have said that. I'm going to give some possible reasons, or only guesses, but I think they could be right. They'd have done it because they're making too much demand on Jesus' time. The last thing he needs, they thought, is to have this queue of people from an unknown village delaying him on his mission. They didn't think that Jesus had the time for this. Perhaps they thought that it was all unnecessary After all, they could, these families could go to the synagogue. They could go there every Sabbath and listen to all the, the information that was conveyed in the synagogue. And if they wanted to have some kind of prayer made for them, then that's the place to do it. Or maybe they just thought, that children had no role in the life of the kingdom. Because that's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for the kingdom to appear. They themselves, of course, are going to have a very big role. But children, what kind of role are they going to have? According to the disciples, none. According to Jesus, the kingdom belongs to them. How does Jesus respond to what the disciples are doing? Or even to what the parents are doing? Well, in his response, he doesn't even speak Speak about the parents. And everything he says is all about the children. 
Of course, he was pleased that the parents had taken their children to be blessed by him. But in his explanation, or in his reaction, he just speaks about what the children were getting. He also tells the disciples that they are a complete hindrance. I mean, they rebuke the parents, and Jesus rebukes them. Their intentions may have in some way been good because they wanted to protect Jesus. But he thought their actions, their words, were a big hindrance to his mission. And then he pointed out what's very surprising. He says that to them, to these children, and I think he means the children there, to these children belongs the kingdom of God. And then goes on to say, if anyone doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child, he won't get in. I wonder if he's saying, these children, whether there was six or twenty or whatever, they're already in the kingdom. But if anybody else wants to join the kingdom, they've got to come like a child. It was certainly a very startling response, wasn't it? So that leads us to think about receiving the kingdom. I mean, Jesus does turn things upside down, doesn't he? He doesn't say that the children should become like the best adult they know. Instead, he says, the adults should become like the children they know. The children who have come to him in some way already. When we think about children receiving the kingdom, in what ways are they different from adults? Here are just some suggestions. A child does not attempt to buy it. Because what resources does a child have? None. The rich young ruler, he had plenty of resources. Wasn't prepared to give anything to the kingdom. But a child doesn't attempt to use his riches to get into the kingdom. Plenty of people try that one. Buy their way to heaven. 
The second thing a child doesn't do, doesn't attempt to work his way into the kingdom. I mean, what degree of commitment can a child give? But adults, well, they can think they can do this and they can do that. As the rich young ruler thought, all this I've done from my youth up. But a child, what could it say about its personal achievement? A child doesn't wait till it gets older. That may be an adult piece of advice. But do you think it's the advice that Jesus gives? A child does not assume that he's got the intellectual capacity to assess whether or not the gospel is still relevant in the 21st century. And nor does a child, is he able to start comparing the gospel with what the world can offer. Which is often the responses that adults make. A child's response, as far as Jesus is concerned here, is humble. How is it humble? just accepts what Jesus says. It's straightforward. Just does what he's told. Believe in Jesus. And it does. Receiving the kingdom. very challenging, isn't it? To be asked to be like a child. Child conversion, of course, is very real. hope we all believe that. I don't just mean in theory. Do you think Jesus' prayer here was answered? Or was he just engaging in some kind of religious action that didn't turn out to have any significance? Or is what's happening here arranged by God in his providence where Jesus prays for these children? Is that a picture of his intercession? In the same way as his prayer in John 17 is a picture of his intercession for adults. No one gets any spiritual blessing, of course, without Jesus' intercession. That must always precede it whether it's a child or an adult. 
hear these infants. Jesus prayed for them. Would his prayer be answered? Of course it was. How else did the kingdom belong to them? They were in the kingdom because of what he did. That's not too unusual, is it? John the Baptist. When was he reborn? Strangely, he was reborn before he was born. And who can understand that? As we can see when the two mothers met, the mother of Jesus and the mother of John, and there was the reaction of John to the presence of Jesus, who hadn't yet been born either. But there was John the Baptist, regenerated from his mother's womb. What an amazing miracle. And we're not to think he's the only one. What do we make of Timothy? From a child, you have known the Scriptures. I read the story of D.L. Moody this afternoon. Maybe you heard it before, but anyway. After a meeting, Moody was asked if there had been any conversions. And he replied, he replied that there had been two and a half. So the questioner said to him, you mean two adults and a child were converted? Moody replied, no. There were two children and one adult. That's the two and a half. How could that be the case? Moody answered, the two children gave their whole life to Jesus. The adult had already wasted half of it. Children's conversion is real. And when it, it happens, we're not to be suspicious. Of course, we're to be careful. But then we're to be careful about adults, too. But apparently, those who have studied the age of professions and revivals, how old people were when they professed to believe in a revival. Those who have studied the figures tell us that the youngest age, sorry, the most common age, is the youngest age. Those under 12. The next most numerous age group is teenagers. And the older they get, 
the fewer they get. I mean, that is quite solemn, isn't it? How does a I read something else this afternoon by Spurgeon. So I'm just going to read it. Ceremony preached on this set of verses. And he was discussing some of the reasons why some people in Christian churches are a bit like the disciples in this incident. And he said this. Another result is that the conversion of children is not expected in many of our churches and congregations. I mean that they do not expect the children to be converted as children. The theory is that if we can impress youthful minds with principles which may in later years prove useful to them, we have done a great deal But to convert children as children and to regard them as being as much believers as their seniors is regarded as absurd. Well, says Spurgeon, to this supposed absurdity I cling with all my heart. It is a sacred joy, says, I believe that the kingdom of God is filled with children, both on earth and in heaven. It is a sacred joy to me on Thursday night to notice certain boys and girls who have for a long time attended the pastor's prayer meeting with great regularity. Some of you old folks do not come and pray for your pastor, says Spurgeon, but these children do, for they love their pastor. And he, on his part, highly values their prayers. Happy church, which is adorned and blessed by prayers of dear children, who early learn to cry to the great Father for the hallowing of his name and the coming of his kingdom. And then he said this, We expect to see children converted. And we do see it. So, Spurgeon, how would a child show he or she is converted? Well, it's not by becoming the most brilliant theologian of of eight years of age that there's ever been. Theology is an adult thing. Nor does it mean that they become somehow sinless and don't need to be corrected. Let's put it this way. They just love to talk about Jesus. That's what a Christian does, isn't it? Loves to talk about Jesus. They love to listen to the Bible. That's what a Christian does, whether a child or an adult. They love to pray. That's what a Christian does, 
whether a child or an adult. And they love to obey, whether a child or an adult. These things are all produced by the Spirit. So they love Jesus, love to talk about him, but not as an adult, but as a child. They ask questions about the Bible, but not the questions adults ask. The questions children ask. They pray to God, but not like adults, like children. And they obey, like children, not like adults. I mean, Jesus thought children would be believers as children. And who are we to question it? How does a child react to its parents? Imagine these parents and infants coming towards Jesus. What's the child doing? Clinging to their parents? Is that not a picture of faith? There's a child five feet above the ground. What's the five feet make it do? Cling. And clinging is a very graphic picture of faith. Five feet's a long distance to a child. But when we grow up, we find there's lots of other things that are far worse than five feet of space. But we still need to cling to Jesus. The child would say, I am safe because I'm clinging. It's a good thing to cling. And if we looked at these families, these parents and children coming to Jesus, well, the children are just depending on their parents, aren't they? What can the child do for itself? Nothing. What can we as adults do spiritually? What does Jesus say? Without me, you can do nothing. Child, as far as this conversation is concerned. The child just depended. And there's huge lessons there, isn't there? What does Jesus mean when he says, unless we're like a child, we cannot enter the kingdom of God or cannot receive the kingdom of God? 
What's Jesus speaking about when he says, receive the kingdom? Well, he obviously doesn't mean that they're going to own the kingdom. I think he means they're going to receive the benefits of the kingdom. How do we receive the benefits of the kingdom? The benefits of the kingdom are salvation. How do we receive it? In the same way as a child would receive it. Just by trusting Jesus. And believing that he meant what he said. Don't suppose the disciples ever forgot this rebuke. But it's a marvelous description that Jesus gives, isn't it? That children, sadly often forgotten, are often ignored. He says, to them belongs the kingdom. Shall we pray?